morning's passage comes from Song of Solomon, starting in chapter 5, verse 2. I'm going to read Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, all the way through to chapter 6, verse 3. 5, 2 to 6, 3. I slept... But my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves behind streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time that you've given us an opportunity to gather together as your people Brothers and sisters, under you, our Father, in Christ, our Lord, and come before your word to be empowered by your spirit, so that indeed, as was prayed earlier, we might be conformed more into the image of Christ. Do that now through your text, through your inspired and living word. Convict us of sin, bring us to humility, but Lord, lift us up in faithfulness and obedience and in awe and fear of you. We pray these things to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the Song of Songs so far, we've seen that the marriage between the two main characters, the man and the woman, 
is in one sense a, a return to the peace and the beauty and the goodness of the Garden of Eden. It's a poem showing us how love and, and marriage ought to point us back to God, to walk again in the cool of the day with God. If you've been following along with us, you'll have no doubt noticed that much of the poem is really quite ideal, isn't it? There's an idealism purposely being presented here for the purpose of showing us the goodness of godly marriage. And it's as if we've been walking with Adam and Eve throughout the Garden of Eden, being able to watch and observe through poetry their, their pre-fall tenderness, their passionate lovemaking, and their selfless closeness. But in this morning's text, we seem to walk east of Eden. We momentarily leave the uninterrupted bliss of idealism and, and step into the muddy waters of realism. In other words, if last week we saw the, the joyful climax of their wedding and, and their wedding night, well, this week we see their first real marital tiff. Let's work through the text, and I want us to first see what the poetry is doing here, what the author is saying to us, but then I'll briefly at the end end with a few points of application. You'll notice the poem begins with the woman sleeping. Verse 2 says, I slept, but, but my heart was awake. Is this a dream, just like her dream back in chapter 3? Probably. It reads like a dream, doesn't it? Switching randomly between scenes, weird things like, like her being found and beaten by the watchman in verse 7, but then quickly turning to see her friends in verse 8 as if nothing just happened. And then waxing eloquent next on how handsome her husband is. That's why I think she says, I, I slept, but my heart was awake. She's in bed, her eyes are closed, but her imagination, her, her dreaming, is, <clears throat> it's vivid, it's, it's real. Alas, in her dream, something's not quite right. We see that her beloved is not with her. The man she loves and who ought to be next to her in bed is, well, he's gone. She's alone. Or is she? Verse 2 again. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Ah, there he is. At the door. He's here now. He's home. He's, he's ready to come in. But why is the door locked? Is this door meant to be read as a, a literal door to their house? Or perhaps the door represents something more intimate, more private? Hence the rest of verse 2. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Whether he's at the literal front door or locked out, or he's, he's being locked out from something or someone more special, the point is still the same. There's separation between the man and the woman. Perhaps they'd scheduled a time to be together. A romantic evening of togetherness and intimacy. She's prepared something to eat. She's washed up and, and wearing something only for him. And, and she's waited. And she's waited. And finally she gives up in unfulfilled hope. Blows out the candles. Gets ready for bed. And, and now alone and probably a bit bitter, she falls asleep. Meanwhile, our guy friend, in typical guy-like fashion, is totally unaware that the plans have changed. And, yeah, he's a little late, but, you know, why let timing ruin a good night? He gets home, he's ready for love, walks to the door, and behold, wait, what? It's locked. I know, says the man. Perhaps I can sweet-talk her back into the mood. 
Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. I've been out all night, I know, but I'm home now. It's almost morning. My head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I imagine there was a nice bit of awkward silence between his requests and her answer in verse 3. But alas, through her silent treatment, she does answer. I've taken off my garment. You expect me to put it back on? I've already washed my feet for bed. You expect me to walk and soil them again? One commentator puts it, she says, what? Open up? It's late. It's too late. In other words, why didn't you call? Call, he says? How could I have called? Phones haven't even been invented yet. She says, I don't care if they've not been invented. You should have called. In essence, she says, no, you missed your chance. I'm in no mood. The ship has sailed. Friends, the tragic opposite of burning love is not necessarily fierce hatred, but more often a bored and numb indifference to the desire and needs of others. I'll come back to this later, but this is why Paul commands married couples in 1 Corinthians 7 that the the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. In fact, Paul says, Neither spouse has authority over their own bodies, but the wife belongs to the husband and the husband belongs to the wife. Therefore, says Paul, do not deprive one another. This is biblical commands. Here, through the foolishness of the husband, as well as a bit of selfishness from the wife, the conjugal rights, as Paul puts it, have been deprived. They are physically separated because they are emotionally and perhaps spiritually, a bit out of step. Why is the man locked out of his own house? Again, that's not the point. This is poetic. This is a dream-like scenario. It's not a narrative, but a poem. And the point being made is, well, that there's tension between the two. There's, There's real conflict here. But now something totally unexpected, but I think totally normal, happens in verse 4. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. In other words, despite her flimsy and and not very selfless response, the man still somewhat pursues her. He shows her that he really does desire her. And to be clear, this isn't describing a kind of brute, selfish, purely satisfy-my-needs pursuit. No, she says in verse 4, my beloved put his hand to the latch. There was a recognition of pursuit fired by love, a passion motivated by godly delight. His continued insistence at closeness is clothed in the tender warmth of love and friendship. What was the result? Well, she says, my heart was thrilled within me. Literally, my my insides were in an uproar and wild. And notice in verse 5, this leads her to action. She's up. She's pouring over her body oil and myrrh, and she goes to open to her beloved. There's this somewhat popular TED Talk. You can find it on YouTube, given by Dr. Michelle Weiner David. She begins by retelling the earth-shattering event of her parents divorcing. She says, from all outward appearances, their marriage was great. They never fought. They always helped each other and were always together. But what she found out years later was that one parent 
longed for intimacy, for closeness, and longed for the deeply desired pleasures of marriage, while the other thought, what's the big deal? Why do you always want this? It's a common scenario, not at all unlike what we see here in the Song of Songs. Michelle Weiner David goes on and says that she's given her life as a researcher and psychologist to studying the effects of intimacy or, or the lack thereof and its relationship to divorce. And what she's found is that though a lack of intimacy does and can lead to divorce, it doesn't have to. In part of her talk, she describes almost exactly what happens here with the woman in verse 4. In a marriage where, where unity and, and, and mutuality is the name of the game, when it comes to intimacy, when one person doesn't have a strong desire, that person inevitably calls the shots. There's no unity, no mutuality, and no matter how strong the desire of the other spouse is, if it ain't happening, it ain't happening. And that can lead to real problems if left alone. But she says in all her research, nine times out of ten, when it does happen, both spouses, the the one with a lot of desire and the one with no desire at all, look back and say, you know, that was good, enjoyable. And, And though I had no desire at first, in the end, I'm happy that there's intimacy between husband and wife. Dr. Rosemary Basin, a researcher at the British Columbia Center for Sexual Medicine, has published a well-read journal article about this very thing. She says that normally there are four stages to intimacy. First, there's desire. Then comes arousal. Third, the consummation. And then fourthly, resolution. And and, and this cycles throughout a normal life. But, But for many people, she writes, that stages one and two are actually switched. That is, they never have a desire which leads them to pursue intimacy. It's just not there. Until, she says, it's actually only after stage two when arousal happens that then the desire appears. It's as if they remember, ah, yes, I do desire this. And so she concludes that though any initiation by a spouse is at first unwelcome, if the initiation for intimacy is granted, The coldness and lack of desire actually gives way to excitement and joy. That's exactly what our text is saying here. The man here has desire, but but she clearly doesn't. There's no way she's getting out of bed. The door is locked. But after the man puts his hand to the door, then her desire is aroused. Her heart was thrilled within her, and she quickly arose and went to behold her beloved. Now, I want to and I need to add a bit of serious caution here for those who are married especially. With different people, there are different levels of desire. Uh, At one time, in different seasons of life, desire increases, sometimes it decreases. And in all my marital counseling, I seldom find that both husband and wife are 100% desiring 100% of the time. And that's normal. But with that, real godly wisdom is needed. So that if we take Paul's words again in 1 Corinthians 7, that each spouse belongs to each other, the advice that Paul is giving is that no matter where you fit on the desire spectrum, love for your spouse is what ought to guide you. That means in wisdom and in love, it is sometimes good to say, my desire is at 110%. 
And my heart is thrilled within me, to use the language of the woman. But because I love you and I know you're not there, I will wait. And that's good and fine. Or, in wisdom and in love, sometimes it's good to say my heart is not thrilled within me. I'm at a negative 10%. But I love you with a Christ-like love and will give myself to you in love. And in this way, both spouses are putting the other before themselves, which inevitably closes the gap between them. How do you know how to act in each situation? My advice, in humble openness, lay your heart bare and talk with your spouse. These are things to communicate in the privacy of your own marriage. Let's turn back to the woman within the poem, where it seems here her dream has turned into something of a nightmare. Her desire and passion, well, now it turns into panic. Look at verse 6. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called to him, but he gave no answer. He's gone. Where has he gone to? We don't know. Again, this is a dream, a poem making a point. But, but having resisted his initiation for love, alas, her lover has now vanished. And so now, in a reversal of roles, she begins to pursue him. I sought him, but I found him not. I, I called out to him, but he gave no answer. And then in verse 7, the watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me and bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. This whole scene is awful. It's gone from bad to worse. Her husband, who has thus far been her protector, has now left her unprotected. In poetic terms, she's saying she feels defenseless, defeated, unprotected, and alone. So now she enlists the help of her old friends, the daughters of Jerusalem, in verse 8. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. What's their response? Well, it sounds a bit snarky, doesn't it? What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than any other beloved that you thus adjure us? You hear the sarcasm and the disdain? What's so special about your guy, O Wonder Woman? Let's find your Superman. She can't catch a break, can she? Not only has she received an unjust beating by watchmen meant to uphold justice, but now she receives ridicule from her bridesmaids, her close friends. I wonder, will her love, her, her covenantal bond, weather the storm of this valley? Is she tempted to give up? Will the chasm grow and they continue to stay separated? Well, by no means. She locks in even more on her beloved groom, remembering and recounting what it is she really loves about him. I'll tell you about my man, she says. Look at verses 10 through 16. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as the raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. Side note, that's probably talking about his great beard. (laughs) I'd be remiss if I didn't point that out. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. 
His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs, alabaster columns, set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon. Choice is the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Notice as she works her eyes from top to bottom. Notice that she repeats three times the element of gold, right? In verse 11, his head is gold. Nearest his heart, in verse 14, his arms are gold set with jewels. And then in verse 15, at the bottom, his his feet are gold. From top to bottom, he's golden. He's costly, magnificent, and pure. He's superior compared to all the rest. And ladies, look, she's actually attracted to him physically. And that's okay. We don't have to buy into the Victorian lie that physical attraction is not becoming of a lady. No, it is good and okay to cultivate a real attraction toward your husband. But look, even though she describes his masculine features as his polished ivory body and whatnot, what does she end with? What does she miss the most about him? It's his companionship, his friendship. See verse 16? This is my beloved. This is my friend. How significant is it that his friendship is tied to her deepest desire for him? Husbands, I don't care how much weight you can put up at the gym. Does your wife call you her friend? Encourage you to lift up that weight and cultivate that bond. Because that feature of friendship, being a true companion, is more costly than any gold. That's what will last through the dark days of marriage. That's what will last when old age, beauty, and physicality will inevitably fade away. In fact, it's that very feature that kind of stuns the woman's friends, doesn't it? Now their sarcasm is gone. Look at verse, or chapter 6, verse 1. Oh, where has your beloved gone? Almost oh, beautiful among women. Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Yeah, they say. That does sound like it's worth it. Well, no sooner do they ask where he is, where he's gone, does he then, much like in a dream, appear before her and ready now to fulfill what he first sought back in the beginning. It's as if the crowd of young Jerusalem daughters has vanished, and now it's, well, it's just the two of them alone. As he goes down to his garden and in return to the pleasures of Eden, he enjoys the spices and lilies of marriage. The chasm of separation has been filled and and brought together emotionally and physically, Reconciliation, seen here in the form of physical intimacy, brings the two into oneness. And indeed, as the woman in verse 3 reminds us, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So there's the text. She falls asleep. He comes home late. She doesn't let him in, and so he takes off. She takes off after him, and instead of finding him, she's found by the brutal watchman and her sarcastic friends. She sings out through it all about how much she loves her husband. And then through that, she finds him, enjoys him, and they enjoy each other. Do they leave the glories of Eden? Yes. We're allowed to see marriage here in its brutal honesty. This side of the fall, east of Eden. But we also see the flaming sword blocking the way being put down. They're they're allowed back into the garden to enjoy each other in selfless oneness without shame or guilt. 
So what can we learn from this? I want to draw out just three points of application. The first point is this, that marriage is not paradise. We see here in the poetry something a bit more real. And we need to be reminded to keep it real. Marriage is hard, hard work, and it's almost absurd to think that we can say to to two selfish sinners, come together for the rest of your lives and kind of work it out. That's tough, if not darn near impossible. So we ought to approach marriage not with rose-colored glasses, but with a strong dose of realism. I remember after my ideal and beautiful wedding, all my friends and family were there, and I was on the top of the world, headed for the moon and the stars. After the wedding, go home and we're getting ready to leave uh, the very next morning for our honeymoon out west, and, and we have to be at the airport, I think at 4.30 in the morning, so there's hardly going to be any sleep at all. 4.30 rolls around and our friend comes and picks us up to take us all the way out to Dulles. Right? You know, Dulles is out there. He's got the music on. We're happy. We're excited. An hour or so later, we start to pull into Dulles, and I do this. And my wife turns at me and says, where is it? I left my wallet at home. So the music goes down. And we ride all the way back in silence. In a bit of tiredness, shame and embarrassment and selfish sinfulness, I say the unwise words as we get home. My wise and witty wife responds quickly back. And that was the start of our marriage. Quickly there. (laughs) By God's grace, we've been slowly working our way up and up and up, and we're continued in that trajectory our marriage immediately got real. Many of us, before we're married, uphold marriage as a kind of answer to all our struggles, the cure to our lovesick hearts. And again, we need to be real. Marriage is actually not the answer to our loneliness, nor is it the cure to being lovesick. The surest proof of that is, well, to get married. I thought he'd be a little bit more like this. I thought she'd be more like that. Why does he continue to do that thing that he knows I hate? Aren't we supposed to live happily ever after? Approaching marriage as the answer to our problems exalts marriage to a wrong and unhealthy place. It becomes an idol. And the idol of marriage, like all other idols, promises a whole lot. But friends, it never delivers. It'll lead you to an uglier and even lonelier place. As we see that even within our text, don't we? Loneliness, hurt, struggle are still present here within this very biblical marriage. Honestly, to one degree or another, they, 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 they're present within every marriage. In marriage, it's far too easy to lose sight of how special one's spouse is. The mundane duties of life, the day in and day out chores of a job, of parenting, of just plain old surviving. All of that can dilute a person's delight to intimacy. So that what used to, to provoke immediate excitement and arousal now, yeah, it just brings a yawn. Again, hatred is not necessarily the opposite of love, but indifference. Apathy, which says, eh, you're not that important to me. 
So do my married folks. Whether you've been married for two months, two years, or 40 years, fight indifference. Fight apathy. Open your eyes and remember the uniqueness you first saw in your spouse. Do you need help doing that? Think about how your spouse is uniquely made to reflect the beauty of the image of God. Think about how your spouse is specially and particularly loved by Jesus Christ and that he died for your spouse. Try and remember what first attracted you to your spouse. And then, guess what? Bring it up. Tell them. Did you notice how in the text the couple is speaking to each other constantly? Speak to your spouse because, you know what, your words matter to you and your spouse. Be like the couple here and outwardly constantly affirm and compliment and bedazzle your spouse with words. Use the words they use. Call your wife a dove. Call your husband your beloved. Invite each other into the garden to graze among the lilies. To my single friends, we need to be frank. Sex is not God, and marriage is not God. God is God. And when we elevate God's good gifts like marriage to a place that only God can fill, then we expect too much from it, and it will inevitably let you down. Seek first your heart's satisfaction in Christ so that marriage can be enjoyed in its right place. The surest cure to making sure marriage does not become an idol which can control your life is to be intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually staggered by the infinite, everlasting, and unchanging supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. Jesus Christ is better than any husband, better than any wife, better than any marriage that anybody could ever have. And to know him intimately is to give no place to knowing and bowing down to idols. The second thing I think we can learn is just as important, but also just as difficult to get into our heart and head. Self-denial is an essential ingredient to love. No matter what the presenting problem is, be it money, time, intimacy, or our in-laws, usually the underlying issue is selfishness. And isn't that what we see in our text? The man's selfish because he was inconsiderate with his time and he came home too late. That's not loving your wife in a self-denying way. And instead of treading softly with apologies and gentleness, he thinks, ah, there's still a shot. I'll try and sweet-talk my way back into her presence. It's not smooth, and it doesn't work, nor is it selfless. But she's selfish too, isn't she? Because it's inconvenient, it's, it's late. She's unwilling to let him in. She's tired and unenthusiastic, and so you can hear the selfishness as she speaks in verse 3. Look again at verse 3 and see how many times she uses the word I and my. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Her thoughts and her heart are not on him. They're they're focused southward. But look how everything changes in verse 4. He shows some gentle initiation And she responds immediately with her focus going from herself to him so that every verse from verse 4 all the way to the end is now focused on him, on her beloved. Now aroused to her beloved, her heart's desire is to seek and find him alone. And she does so at great risk, searching the streets of Jerusalem at night, risking her reputation among her friends. Why? 
Because her focus has changed from I, me, and my to him, my friend, my beloved. And isn't that how the reality of marriage ought to be worked through? When two sinners say, I do, in a world undone by sin, it's from a heart of self-denial where real unity can happen. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's what marriage is supposed to reflect, the gospel, isn't it? In a world undone by sin, where all people come into this existence fundamentally selfish and fundamentally opposed to God, what does God do? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, speaking of the Son, he says, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, that ought to be the heartbeat of our marriages. That should be the heartbeat of our singleness. No matter where we are in life, here's my last point of application, the cross of Christ should guide our living. The self-sacrifice of crucifixion should be at the center of our lives. That means daily should husbands be giving themselves to love their wives. Daily dying to self, making themselves nothing and taking the form of servants so their, their wives might be truly loved. Daily should wives be giving of themselves in humility and meekness, loving their husbands in such joyful, gospel-centered sacrifice that it makes much of them. In singleness, living a life of cross-centered self-denial allows us to faithfully continue when God is silent. Like Jesus on the cross who prayed, God, God, why have you forsaken me? And receives no answer. He nonetheless faithfully surrendered himself to his Father. So too can we, even when God withholds his answers to our prayers, we can surrender ourselves to his good and perfect will. A cross-centered life allows us to remember that God's silence is not his rejection, but his preparation usually for something greater and better. And singleness, the cross of Christ, allows us to know this truth well. I want to close here. In Revelation 3, we have one of those passage that's often quoted, but also often misinterpreted and misapplied. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. You've heard the verse. A lot of people misuse this verse and apply it to unbelievers as a kind of gospel invitation to let Jesus into their hearts. First, theologically, this is kind of absurd. Jesus doesn't need your permission to make you born again. He's God Almighty, and he'll save you and bring you from death to life on his gracious initiative. But secondly, the verse in Revelation is actually directed to people who are already Christians. The image there in Revelation 3 is of a groom speaking to his wife, the church. And much like our text in the Song of Songs, Jesus stands speaking sweet words to his beloved, summoning his bride, the church, to know him more and more and more. He, like the man in the song, is calling us to leave our comforts, which make us sluggish, selfish, and unwilling to draw near to him. 
and his wooing us to open the door in order to know and love him more in self-denial. My charge, O Christian, O Greenbelt Baptist Church, is to ask, how are you responding to the bridegroom of Jesus? Will you arise and enjoy his sweet fellowship? Or is your laziness in spiritual matters causing him to withdraw? Hear his voice now and open the door. This is his church. We are his people. Let us open the door and sweetly commune with our God. To those here who do not know Jesus as their Savior, as your bridegroom, know this. He has already been rejected on your behalf. Indeed, even though you've rejected him thus far in your life and are in danger of being found naked and without your veil, know that he came to be unjustly beaten by the watchmen of Jerusalem on your behalf so that you can know him and find forgiveness in him. Your rejection of him can be totally forgiven when you come to him in faith. And when that happens, he'll never let you go. He is indeed the sweet lover of your soul. So whoever we are, Wherever we are in life, married or single, pray that we might come to Christ and cling to him as the only one who can keep us and love us more. Let's pray.